Well, welcome everyone to church this morning. I want to give a special welcome to those of you who are new. Maybe you haven't been to church in a while. I just hope you feel uh, not just welcomed by us, but you feel the welcome and the embrace of God for you. A couple quick announcements before we go into the passage. Number one, I want to just highlight a big victory and a big celebration we were, uh, were in a fundraising campaign in December, and we reached our goal. And I just wanted to just give <laughs> praise and glory to God. Thank you. Uh, it's, um, it's just a tribute to the generosity of God's spirit in us as a community, just pulling together around the church's financial needs. And we actually went over. We actually had an overflowing cup, Psalm 23, you make my cup overflow, $60,000 overflowing. So, yeah, so we're going to build a water slide. Uh, no, joking. <laughs> Some people are like, yes, yes, slide your way to church. No, um, uh, it's going to go to, obviously, to the ministry expenses of this new year. So thank you so much. And secondly, last week there was a spontaneous moment where I think the Holy Spirit just showed up. It was when I came back out afterward, after the, the last song, and just felt the Spirit in nudge me to invite the fathers to stand up. Do you guys remember that moment? And uh, that wasn't planned. That was a spirit thing. And I just really sensed God was moving on our hearts. And so I want to follow up on that moment because sometimes we need to water a moment for it to gain traction in our life and become a movement in our life. So not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, January 23rd, I want to invite all the men, not just fathers, but all men to a spontaneous gathering. I'm going to be, me and Willie are facilitating over in the chapel. Uh, Willie and I got to talking and just felt like God was moving in that moment. Let's just help people know how to take next steps in taking, being more intentional and taking initiative spiritually in their homes with their families, their children, their marriages, their roommates, their teammates, whoever the people are the guys put in your life. So next Monday, January 23rd at 8 p.m. in the chapel, come and join us. It's going to be for one hour. So it's at 8 p.m. so you can help your wife get the kids down. So it's a blessing to everybody. So no excuses. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Okay, let's dive into God's word. Get your book out. Open to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We have an incredible passage for today. This is going to just really light you up. Get ready. Let's, let's stand for the reading of God's word together. Come on, let's, if, you can, if you can stand, if you're comfortable. Verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. And because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him in three days and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, now presumably this is Peter's house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, if you could just cue the crickets right now. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> I know. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. 
And so he took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes, there, we just did that this morning, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John. Watch this, guys. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop. Ugh because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to go to two hand, with two hands into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Lord, have mercy on us today. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our ears to these challenging but essential and crucial words. For they may not be what they seem. This is, in fact, good news. And we pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Um, we have some really powerful teaching from Jesus on some of the most controversial topics in the Bible. Don't worry. There'll be more to come, but he's beginning. Very controversial teaching. And uh, so this is going to probably feel more like a Bible study than most of these messages. I'm going to really, really try to drill into these, these verses and make sure we understand it. Because understanding some of these crucial topics is essential. And um, I wanted to start with how Jesus frames this whole section. And uh, look at verse 31 with me. The whole passage is framed with Jesus talking about his imminent death. Verse 31, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Um, but, and the disciples rejoiced because it all made sense to them. Now, one of the things I love about the New Testament and what establishes for me the reliability of these historical documents is that they are constantly portraying the disciples in their flaws. The very men and women who propagated the message are being portrayed for their imperfection and their humanity, which I think just establishes this is not propaganda. This is men and women confronting God himself in the flesh and not sure what to do about it. And it says in verse 32, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And it's that fear 
and uncertainty that colors the disciples' reactions to everything that we're about to see. Now, Jesus' purpose to die on the cross and rise sets the stage for this entire passage. So everything that we're about to read is Jesus attempting to explain two things, why he has to die and why we as well need to carry our cross if we're serious about following him. So let me put it to you. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why not just bring some good teaching, do some miracles, and convince us all? Why die? And number two, why do we need to carry our cross? Jesus is going to really begin to explain that here today. Now, the cross of Jesus is going to, in this passage, demonstrate how Jesus redefines what it means to be truly human. The cross of Jesus redefines what it means for us to be truly human. Because in going to the cross, he is demonstrating to us who he really is and who we really are. And then secondly, his cross shows us how he intends to rescue us from the loss of our humanity. Now that's really important for us to understand because this whole passage is really about um, how we view greatness and how we define the path to greatness as we will see. And, and that goes with how we see ourselves and what our purpose is here on earth. Why are we here? And so Jesus is going to explain this. And listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now what C.S. Lewis is talking about is the, the biblical idea that human beings are made in God's image and that we reflect and are imbued with the glory of God's greatness as human beings. Now that's important as we go into this discussion about greatness. Now watch what he says here. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And so the cross is actually the way in which Jesus reflects back to us the greatness of the human soul and the greatness of God's love because the cross is God's necessary response in an effort to rescue his endowed greatness into the human soul. That's what we're going to unpack. Jesus' teaching on the cross redefines two essential topics for us. Number one, he redefines what it means for us to pursue greatness in our life. And number two, Jesus' cross redefines our eternal destiny. My friends, you have an eternal destiny. And that's what we're going to talk about. And so, um, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts to these really important, crucial, and challenging words. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to say and show us. And open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we go into this, I want to just also uh, recommend a couple of supplemental reading ideas that might help you to follow up with some of the topics in today's message that I can't explore comprehensively. So let's go to the next slide for a minute, and I'll come back to this one uh, with the books. The one with all the books. Ah, here we go. Three things you could read if you want to dive deeper. As we talk about becoming servants of all, um, I wanted to recommend this book, Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis. Now, um, in our day and age, the whole topic of refugee care has been scandalized and politicized. And it's, it, it gets, the more something is politicized, the harder it is for us as followers of Jesus to see what a biblical vision is for that topic. 
I think these guys do a really good job of highlighting the controversial aspects of it, but also the biblical aspects of it. So I want to recommend that book if you want to read more about that. Um, I love Martin Luther King Jr.'s Strength to Love. It's a compendium of some of his sermons. If you want to see what um, a Christian vision looks like as it intersects with racial division. It's powerful, and you'll see how much the gospel of Jesus Christ was driving Martin Luther King's movement and his vision. And then lastly, we're going to talk about hell today. And one of my favorite reasons, if I had to recommend one book as you, to think more about hell, I would recommend The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's a great little kind of a fable about eternal life, and uh, I think it's going to give you a different perspective than you've ever had before on this subject. And I recommend the audiobook version. I just read it over Christmas. Wow. Get the audio version. Go on a walk and listen to it. It's fantastic. Okay, with that being said, let's look at the way the cross redefines our pursuit of greatness. And number two, our eternal destiny. Let's start with our pursuit of greatness. Verse 33, it says that they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house... Again, he's in a private space. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. There's a little bit of irony here. Mark loves to use irony. And it's ironic that Jesus is talking about going to the cross and the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Now, I think that's hilarious and we should see the humor in it. Because it does reflect something true about human nature and the temptation we always have as followers of Jesus to misconstrue what Jesus taught and to see it through a lens of self-preservation. What is going to benefit us? And we lose sight of Jesus' fundamental, essential teaching that we are here to worship a God who gave up his life for us and to reflect that we are to give up our own lives as well. Now, that ethic is so challenging that we can overlook it and miss it. And listen to what the commentator, um, James Edwards, my favorite commentator on the book of Mark says. He says that at no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. So let's talk about that. Now, what do we observe about the way Jesus engages this issue of greatness? Number one, what I love about this moment is that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for wanting greatness. Let me just state this very clearly. The Bible does not condemn the deep-seated human yearning to be great. What Jesus does is instead redefine what greatness is for us. Now that's important because inside of all of our hearts is a yearning to be great. None of us here wants to feel insignificant, or that if we were to disappear from this church or our friends' lives, that we would, if, if we went completely unnoticed, it would break our hearts. None of us wants the feeling of anonymity or insignificance. And I think there's something deep within all of our hearts that wants to know that our life makes a difference. And that desire is instilled in us because God himself has put that in your heart. Every human being is invested with the greatness of God's glory being made in his image. Now, it's not on the screen, but let me just highlight some things that go back to Genesis. Number one, God made you in his image, which means you uniquely reflect something of God. 
We're going to discover some of those things today. But secondly, God created human beings to have dominion and rulership over the earth, to have influence and leadership over all creation to bring about its thriving. But there are ways in which we seek to exert that dominion for our own sake and behind that impulse to use our leadership for our own benefit first and foremost is the cause behind so much of the violence and the suffering and evil in our world. And Jesus wants to untangle us and free us from that impulse and that false pursuit of greatness. Jesus seeks to redefine our vision of what makes our lives great. So let me ask you this, something you can discuss with friends, family, after service, okay? Over your In-N-Out cheeseburger or some donuts or a lollipop. Number one, I want you to talk about is this, who or what is your vision of greatness? What image comes to your mind when you think about your life becoming great? Some of us in this room think that to follow Jesus is to just renounce any desire for greatness, and that's, that's not true. We were created for glory and to reflect God's glory. Others of us have ideas and notions of greatness that are not aligned with Jesus. But what's your image of greatness? What does it mean to be great at your soccer game this coming weekend? What does it mean for you to be great when you go home to your family? What's it mean to be great for you at work or in your life? Now, to help us get there, the disciples are going to help us. Be, they're like a vehicle to get into those places in our life that we don't want to go to on our own. So let's watch how the disciples define greatness. Watch this in verse 38. It says this. So the disciples are hearing Jesus talk about bring, you know, bringing the little child into their midst. And they're like, oh, I know Jesus. I know how to apply this lesson. In verse 38, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop. Is that right, Jesus? And they're misunderstanding. He goes, because he was not one of us. Now, how does this moment reflect the disciples' vision of greatness? Think about it. I'm going to unpack it for you in the Greek, and it's going to get worse than it looks even right now. So in the Greek, it says that they did this because he was not one of us. If you go back to the, go back and look at verse 38, and uh, you'll see it right there. It goes, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop. Look at that, because he was not one of us. Now that phrase, not one of us, is actually a phrase translated from the Greek word right there, um, ekolothi. Now that word ekolothi just means to not, it means to follow. And so what the disciples are really saying is, we told him to stop because he is not following us. Okay, what they're not saying is, Jesus, we told him to stop because he's not following you. Because notice that the guy who's casting out the demons is doing it in Jesus' name. No, the disciples are concerned that this guy is out there doing good in Jesus' name without following them. Do you see what's going on here? And the disciples use their privileged position as followers of Jesus, as his apostles, rather than to meet this guy and encourage him and build him up in this moment and bring a little bit more of heaven to earth, they actually stop this guy from casting demons out and bring a little more hell to earth which says something about how we define greatness. Because how we define greatness has the power both either to shape us in our lives so that we are people bringing heaven to earth 
or bringing hell to earth. And that's what Jesus is correcting in this moment. Greatness defined by the disciples is putting ourselves over others. The need, the impulse that we have as human beings to want to assert ourselves over other people and to put ourselves over others for the sake of our security, our benefit, or our status. Because in the end, other people's greatness is a zero-sum game. If someone else is becoming great, it is at our, the greatness the, at the expense of our own greatness. Does that make sense? Sometimes when we see other people getting great, it threatens us. I'll give you an example from my own life. Since we're picking on the disciples, let's pick on the, the preacher. Well, I remember one time when I was uh, in student ministry, at this point I had been at that ministry for seven, eight years, and I was the established primary preacher for the student ministry, and this new guy showed up. And this new guy showed up, and we were at our first student retreat, and he gets up to give his message, and he gives this message that had me laughing, had me crying, and on my face, becoming a Christian all over again. And it was just so good. But then, get this, there's this moment, this thought that creeped in after it was all done. It, it, it started like this. That was a great message. Oh, that was the best message I've ever heard. Hmm. I think that was better than any message I've ever done. Ah, I bet people wouldn't want to listen to me anymore and get this. Seriously, in the span of five seconds, I got here. Maybe I don't belong here anymore. Now watch. This is embarrassing to admit, but I want to highlight, use myself as an example. The world's pursuit of greatness is always a zero-sum game. And it sees our greatness at has to be at the expense of others, and other people's greatness is at the expense of ours because there are limited resources of greatness in the world. And we can see this with individuals where we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people, competing with other people, but we can also see it with material resources where if we give them more of this, there will not be enough for who? For us, think about it in the world of politics and it's used as a way of driving a wedge between us and biblical teaching that we are to look out for the disadvantaged, those who don't have, because if we're looking out for them and we give them those resources, there won't be enough for, for us. And you can see the ways in which this kind of worldly path to greatness can deceive us using fear. Now this guy, this preacher, went on to be one of my best friends, and we co-authored a book together. And later that day, I came up to him, and I confessed my sin. I said, bro, would you just forgive me and pray for me? And I repented, and me, I just realized that there was enough to go around. People did not care if he was giving a great message. People were just as ready to let me preach. And I realized that at God's table, there's enough for everybody. And you think about the feeding of the 5,000, right? Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? Very intentionally, that story is a moment where there's a scarcity of resources. There's not enough. And the disciples go, this is all we got. And what Jesus is trying to show is when, pe when the people of God live out of an abundance mindset, that with our Father in heaven, there's always going to be enough. And we have faith. It frees us to live with a totally different perspective. 
It frees us to live as servants and as those who can be a blessing to others and to break free from the zero-sum game. Look at Jesus' vision in verse 35. He says this, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. This teaching right here, that single verse has changed the face of the earth because right here we're going to see the very seed of human rights. The idea that all people are created equal is right here. It's not first and foremost an American value. It's first and foremost a kingdom biblical value. And when Jesus taught this, he was cutting against the grain of human society and the natural human impulse to want to find our greatness by putting, our, by putting others in service to us rather than by putting ourselves in service to others. Listen, when Jesus brings out the little child in this moment, so he's like, okay, be a servant to all. And the disciples must have been wondering, like, what do you mean by all? Like, how far do we go with that? And so Jesus goes and gets a little child and he places the child in front of them and he says, you see this little child? Now, a little child represents the weak, the vulnerable, and the marginalized in society. Because a little child brings no economic or productive value to a family. Are you with me, parents? Right? <laughs> they don't make you money. They cost you money. Are you with me? You get that. Parents get it right away. Kids are like, what? For reals? <laughs> I bring my good looks. I bring my charming personality. I know. You do. You make us very happy. No doubt. But economically and productively, I mean pragmatically, and that's what I want to emphasize, pragmatically, economically, they are not an advantage. And so Jesus is holding this little child out to represent in society the weak and the vulnerable that we are called to be servants of. Now, I love this quote by Martin Luther King. Listen to this. Let's go back to Martin Luther King because it's, it's, not, it's actually just a coincidence on my end, on the planning side, that we will be celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. and what he did on the same weekend we're talking about this because the whole civil rights movement was seeking to take people who were put to the back of the bus and to bring them to the front. That doesn't mean we need to belittle or diminish other people to do it, but it does mean we need to break maybe some human traditions and some human values and concepts of greatness because to bring them to the front of the bus means I have to go to the back. And it's that zero-sum game that Jesus is trying to break us free from. It's like in a family, you know what I mean? In a family dynamic, when someone praises one child, have you ever been in a moment where you feel like you're that kid going, what about me? Where's my attention? You know what I mean? Have you ever been there where someone's getting praised and you start to go, oh, what about me? That is what Jesus is addressing right there. Now listen, uh, this quote, uh, not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great because greatness is determined by service. See, listen to this. In a culture where we define greatness by fame and how many followers we literally can measure on our social media feeds, we can literally quantify our greatness by how many people follow us. Never in human history have we been able to do that, but here we can. What the Bible is saying is 
Fame and greatness are not equal any more than pleasure and happiness always go together or glamour and, and beauty go together. And he's distinguishing between these ideas so that we can understand the way of Jesus better. I love that. And he redefines greatness by the way that we treat one another. And we'll get to why that's so important. But watch how Jesus redefines greatness. Number one, let's go to the next slide. Jesus redefines greatness as the ability, number one, to see people the way that God sees them. To see no one as ordinary, to steal from C.S. Lewis. There is no ordinary person. The greater ability we have to see the image of God in other people is a testimony to the greatness of our soul because it reflects the heart and nature of God. Which is what's so amazing about Martin Luther King Jr., who advocated for a nonviolent resistance and talked about loving the person who is the oppressor. I got a great quote I just happen to have here. Listen to this. Um, In your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat or humiliate him or even pay them back for their injustices that they have heaped upon you. That, my friends, is a uniquely biblical ethic that comes from Jesus. It's the ability to see even in the oppressor, though it's marred and though it's buried and though it's distorted, the the image of God in that person. So greatness is the ability to see God's image in one another and that in all people there is an intrinsic greatness. Number two, the ability to bless, benefit, and lift others up, get this, in order to bring forth that greatness. Now, this is amazing, because what did Jesus do on the cross? On the cross, Jesus is making himself a servant of all. And on the cross, by making him a servant of all, he is dying for everyone. Listen to this great quote in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to jump ahead, but I'm going to pull it out right here. 2 Corinthians says this, uh, he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. In becoming a servant of all on the cross, he died for all that they might be, be set free, demonstrating the grace and the glory of God's goodness to humanity. And when we serve others, we are bringing witness and testimony to what Jesus did on the cross and that it's real and not just Christian mythology. To lift others up and to bring forth that greatness because on the cross, Jesus brought forth our greatness by laying his life down for us. This is the greatness and the glory of God's grace. Now, the high points in Christian history have been the moments the church has stood up for the weak, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. I want to give you a few examples and show you the unique legacy in history of the, early ch- of the church and fighting for the dignity and the rights of humanity in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen to these examples. Number one, during the Black Death period, during the 300s and 400s, people were getting the bubonic plague. And get this, people were being abandoned by their family and by their friends, and Christians were taking them in. Now, Christians 
from the perspective of the non-believers were seeing Christians not die from the plague, and they thought that they had supernatural protection from the plague. But what was really happening was as they took in these abandoned people, Christians were getting sick, some were dying, but the ones who didn't die and got sick became immune. And so what they thought was supernatural immunity was supernatural love. And then in the 19th century, in the 18, what was it, the, um, yeah, the ni- late 19th century, we have William Wilberforce, who's dedicated his whole life as a follower of Jesus to end to abolishing slavery and dedicated his career and risk his reputation to rescue people that were enslaved. And then you have in the 1830s, at the same period of time, Christians fighting to reform child labor laws because children were being required, get this, to work from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. with a 30-minute break. And it was Christians that fought for reform in society. Isn't that amazing? I'll tell you, economically, I don't know that that worked for anyone's advantage. There was an economic financial cost to ending that slavery system. And when we get attached to any system that provides financial gain at the expense of human life, we have to allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to lead us to a place of repentance and the readiness to embrace that area of change with faith and to not allow the pragmatics of it to hold us back from what's right. That's where it gets politicized, and that's where it becomes controversial. And that's where Jesus has called Christians for thousands of years to step in the gap and in faith have a new vision for humanity. Okay, I want to give you some examples of what would it look like for us to step out? Okay, Ryan, I want to step out. I want to be a part of this. What can I do? Here we go. A couple ways as a church that we are dedicated to creating space for you to be a servant of all, to create opportunities, because what makes our church great is not our buildings. It's not how many people fill these pews. It is the service we bring to the community here in San Diego. And so I want to give you some examples. Number one, there's a meal packing event coming up on Sunday, February 26th. And that's something you could do as a whole family, to show up together, talk to your kids about it, maybe even read this verse and talk about God's love for all people. Number two, there's, um, if you want to serve and make a difference in kids' lives, high school volunteer leader. We need volunteer leaders. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. Let me tell you something. All you need to do is be ready to let God love kids through you, and you're going to be a huge help. Um, Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings, we had the San Diego Rescue Mission Shower Ministry during the weekdays, and the Who Is My Neighbor Immigration Conversation for the Curious. Now, if you go on the app and um, on our home screen on the app, you'll see there's a, a main uh, little uh, thing you can click that will show all these line up for you, and you can sign up for what you feel like works for you, your family. But those are some opportunities right there. Um, so let's just take a moment, let's just pause and just let the Lord just speak to our hearts. Lord, the high points in Christian history have been the moments where, Lord, the church has stood for the weak, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. Because, Lord, it reflects the, the stand that you took on the cross for all humanity and the weakness and the vulnerability and the oppression of sin and death over our life. And you gave us, Lord, what we don't deserve. 
You did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray, show us opportunities, God, through even the simplest acts of service, greeting someone at church, giving someone a cup of water, buying a burrito for somebody on the side of the road to give witness, testimony to your cross and to your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the question is, like, why does Jesus talk about hell in this moment? And I want to just cut to the chase on this. Look at this, verse 33. In verse 33, it says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Now, don't panic. I'm not going to go hellfire brimstone on you right now, okay? And in this moment, Jesus is not talking about hell to scare us and manipulate us into obedience. And I think there is history in church history where it's been used that way, where hell has been used to manipulate and control people through fear. But that's not what Jesus is doing. In fact, Jesus is like a good physician talking about hell the way a physician talks about the consequences of a disease if we don't let him treat us. Now, I want to give you an example from my life. Jesus is not trying to scare us. He wants to warn us, just like my skin doctor. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I had to have skin surgery on my ear to remove cancer, and my doctor had been telling me for years, you need to get out of the sun. I love to surf, and I was swimming almost every day out at the Boys and Girls Club, which was outside with no cover, and I just loved all that vitamin D. I was just soaking it up like a sponge. And my skin doctor was, every time I visited her, was telling me, you need to get out of the sun, you need to get out of the sun. And so she would try these different techniques. You need to wear a rash guard when you swim. I'm like, no way am I going to swim 3,000 yards in a rash guard. You know, there's no way I'm going to wear one of those hats when I go surfing. Sorry, guys, if you do that. They're like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And my vanity was going to kill me. And so at one point, she just said, she had enough. And she just said, look, I got to tell you, if you don't make some changes, you're going to die. I was like, whoa. I know. I literally I was like, whoa. You know, there I am in my gown, feeling pretty vulnerable. And, <laughs> and she's like, look, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to show you that if you don't change, something bad's going to happen. She had just lost a patient to skin cancer. And she told me the story, how she, for years she had been telling this person to change, and they wouldn't change. And she's like, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I just need you to know the truth. This is serious. I think this is what Jesus is doing right here. Jesus is like a physician wanting to address something really serious in our life, that there are things in our life, ways in which we pursue greatness for our life, that if we're not careful, is going to kill us. And he wants to cut it out. The context of this passage about cut it off and pluck it out, I wanna, it, it can be applied to any and every sin in our life, but very specifically, it has to do in this passage with how we pursue greatness and the way that we treat one another, the ways that we hold bitterness against one another and unforgiveness, the ways that we hold prejudice against one another, the way that we hold and try to put ourselves above one another, the way that rather than being a welcoming presence, when people talk about injustice they face, we find ways to justify or rationalize or point fingers and go, oh, you're this or you're that, and we back away from these moments rather than leaning in and asking Jesus, where does your compassion show up here in this moment? And there are things in our life that need to be cut out, that need to be removed, and that are serious. Now listen to this. Let's talk about health very specifically. 
Um, the idea of hell actually, believe it or not, speaks to two things, the greatness of the human soul and the greatness of God's love. Number one, it says here that the fire is never going to go out. Now, the idea of eternity is painful to think about, but it speaks to the fact that you are made in God's image and you have a soul, and get this, you are going to live forever. That is the biblical teaching, that you will live forever. But if you choose to live this side of heaven without God, you will live forever without God. Nothing can change the fact that you will go on forever. It will be with God or without God. Listen, I want to read you a quote I didn't get to do earlier, but listen to this from J.I. Packer, a great theologian. He writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. Here it is. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. And I agree with J.I. Packer. God will never force you to be in relationship with him. He can only invite and call you. But when we reject God, we're not, God's not getting petty with us and going, well, now I'm going to punish you for making me feel bad about myself. Like God is just like, you know, got a big ego and his feelings are hurt. It's just that apart from God, there is no life. And what is indicative of our allegiance to Jesus is the way we define greatness and how we pursue it. When we pursue greatness as a life of serving and building others up, we are reflecting the life of God in us and our discipleship of Jesus. But when we live our lives pursuing our greatness for ourselves, we reflect a life not dedicated to God, but to ourselves. I want to invite the band to come out. As you go into this song, look at this. I want to show this slide real quick. Let's go ahead and show this image. And when Jesus teaches about hell here, can we show the image of Gehenna? The Greek word is Gehenna, and it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word uh, or phrase for Valley of Hinnom. When Jesus talked about hell, he was referencing actually a real physical place. This, my friends, is hell. Uh, Gehenna was a ravine that ran along the south side of Jerusalem. And in ancient Israel, this place right here, this ravine, was the place where in the worship of idols, child sacrifice was committed in worship of the false god Moloch. Now, Josiah, a reformer, rose up and defiled this place of worship and turned it into a garbage dump. And it, by the time of Jesus, it was the place where trash was thrown and burned and dead bodies were thrown that had no place to be buried, hence the worms. And it was a real place, a place that would come to the mind of a person when Jesus used that phrase. And in this moment, he's demonstrating two things about hell. Number one, hell is real. Number two, hell is the place of our own making. Listen to... Uh, C.S. Lewis, and now we'll go into worship here and bring this before God. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. It has been the pursuit of greatness from the world's perspective that has been the cause of the violence, the evil, and the suffering in our world. But when we are dedicated to Jesus and to following him, 
he gives us a whole new vision of greatness. Not a greatness of elevating ourselves, but a greatness that elevates him. And when we live elevating him, we find our lives dedicated to lifting up the weak, the weary, the downtrodden. We find ourselves willing to even sacrifice our own convenience, even our own safety and resources to see others lifted up. That, my friends, is heaven invading earth. And that is what we were made for by the grace of God. I want to be tried by fire, purified. You take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my life. I want to be tried by fire, purified. You take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my sing that again. I wanna be tried by fire, purified. You take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my life. I wanna be tried by fire, purified. You take whatever you Lord, here's my life. Let's just stay in this moment of prayer. The fire in the passage is first, yes, it is judgment, but then the fire, to be salt with fire, is to embrace the moments in our life where our will is not done, where our egos are thwarted, and to recognize as an opportunity to allow God to transform us from the inside out so that we are no longer trying to assert ourselves over others, but we are learning to become in the name of Jesus Christ, a servant to others. And that isn't, that is not the loss of ourself, but it's in the giving up of ourself that we find ourselves. It's in dying to ourself that we find new life. And that is the fundamental faith of a Christian that where God's calling me to die is where I'm going to rise. Where God's calling me to give to share, to forgive, to love. Where God's calling me to be patient and kind. Where God's calling me to be faithful. Where God's calling me to be persistent, not give up. These are the places that God wants to raise us up. Let's just take a moment. Lord, if there's anything in us that needs to be cut out, that's keeping us from trusting you and following you and being devoted, free to bless, to love, to care for others. Any pet doctrines, pet views, anything that in us, Lord, needs to be brought under your scalpel, we pray, show us, Lord. And lastly, Lord, you came and laid down your life and embraced the pain of hell that we might never have to taste it Lord, you were separated from the Father on the cross that we might never be separated from him. Listen to these words. The Father has sent his Son into the world 
that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. If you want to have certainty that you are right with God and you will spend eternity in his presence with him, I'm going to invite you right now just to raise your hand. And as you raise your hand, you're saying, God, I need to know you as my Savior. I want to know you as my Savior, as my Lord. I want to know your love in my life. Raising your hand doesn't earn God's love. It's a way of receiving what he has done for you. I see you in the back. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you, my friend. I see you. I see you, brother. Let me read this scripture over you, then I'll dismiss us. Here we go. Over those who raise your hands, I want to read this over you. He died for you so that you might live no longer for yourself, but for him who died and was raised for you. So, Lord, we pray. Thank you that in giving ourselves away, we find our true self. And you restore the dignity of who we truly are made in your image to use our privilege and our power to lift others up, not for our own advantage, but for the advantage of others. We become like you. May it be so, Lord. May the church renew its highest moments. May you show us as a church how we can give ourselves away that others might see the glory of your cross in us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you raise your hand, come on, let's just thank the Lord. Before you leave, if you raise your hand, would you let us pray for you? So this is not just a a passing moment, but it sinks deep roots in your heart. Let us pray for you, but for the rest of you guys, go get your kids, go get some in and out, and I got lollipops waiting for you. I'll see you outside.